leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The difficulty in diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and identifying it at its earliest stages when interventions offer the best opportunity for success is one of the critical challenges in addressing the neurodegenerative condition. Cortex Labs has developed quantitative analysis software that allows physicians to analyze brain images to diagnose and monitor patients with the disease. We spoke to Chris Harris, CEO of Cortex, about the difficulty in diagnosing Alzheimer's disease today, how its technology works, and its efforts to marry its software to genetic data as a way to identify and monitor people who may be at risk for developing the disease. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. It's great to be here. We're going to talk about Cortec Labs, Alzheimer's disease, and your NeuroQuant 3.0 diagnostic tool for the condition. Let's begin with Alzheimer's itself. How big a health problem does this represent today? Um, Alzheimer's is actually a pretty significant problem and getting more serious uh, as time goes by, given the sort of aging population in many countries, including the U.S. and, uh, and other places like Japan. Um, in 2015, there were roughly 46.8 million people worldwide living with some kind of dementia, and Alzheimer's is about 50% of diagnosed dementias, typically. Um, it's expected that the number will double every 20 years and reach 75 million around 2030. So uh, it's it's definitely a very significant and growing problem. It's um, The biggest impact looks like it's going to be in low- and middle-income countries, but in high-income countries as well, we're still seeing you know millions and millions of people with the disease. It's uh, uh, very challenging. And how is the condition diagnosed today, and, and how difficult is it to accurately diagnose? Uh, it's actually um, uh, before before our software came along, and before some of the pet tracers came along. Really, there was no definitive diagnosis of Alzheimer's uh, prior to a post mortem. Um, you know, you could uh, have a physician say they suspect Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, they, their best guess is that this is what it is, but without uh, some kind of definitive uh, biomarker, it wasn't possible to make a call that it is truly Alzheimer's. Um, the volumetric software, uh, NeuroQuant uh, and uh, others now entering the field, do have uh, a lot of capability to show patterns of brain degeneration that are specifically associated with Alzheimer's. And so, uh, obviously, things are getting much better diagnostically now. PET imaging also is uh, is a definitive diagnosis. The amyloid PET 
imaging, but uh, it's very expensive and it's uh, invasive in that you're given radioactive tracer, basically, that is going to be uh, used in that procedure. So minimally invasive uh, uh, techniques such as volumetric MRI that uh, we utilize is definitely the preferred method. We've seen many experimental drugs and clinical studies fail. Is there any sense that misdiagnosed patients have played a role in the high failure rate of these clinical studies? Yeah, I think that's a really big problem. Um, the patient population, the patient selection, and, and trial design are the two biggest reasons why clinical trials tend to fail. Um, so if you have a disease, have a, a molecule that's supposed to treat somebody or any uh, biologic or any other uh, candidate to treat a particular disease such as Alzheimer's, your end result is only going to be as good as the the patient selection can make it. So if you have patients who are really never going to develop Alzheimer's anyway, then you have very little chance of um, doing a, a successful drug trial on these people. And if you have people with a dementia that you assume is Alzheimer's, but it isn't, then your drug that you're trying to use to treat Alzheimer's again is not going to see a, a positive result. So it really is key to, to select for patients who either are already going down that path or who have a, pro a propensity to be going down that path towards Alzheimer's if you're trying to find a drug that's actually useful in treating that disease. Your quantitative analysis software for physicians, which is used to analyze brain images, is not only used for Alzheimer's disease, but a range of other neurological conditions. What exactly does the software do? Well, that's right, Danny. Um, so our software can be used to uh, interpret or help to uh, interpret the MRI images for uh, several different conditions. So aside from Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis is a big, uh, big um, area where physicians are using the software right now, uh, where we can help to not only diagnose but to monitor the treatment of the and the course of disease and see whether a particular treatment is working or not. Uh, we also work in epilepsy and traumatic brain injury, or two uh, other really big areas that we're involved in. And the software really uh, takes the 3D T1 um, structural MRI scan, which is a fairly routine scan done at, at any time that somebody comes in with a, a memory complaint or a pers um, suspected MS or epilepsy condition. Um, and then the MRI scan is sent to our software, which would be hosted on a computer either in locally there at the uh, physician's office or in the cloud. And it automatically, our software automatically processes the MRI images it identifies all of the regions, uh, different regions in the brain that may be of interest. Uh, about 75 different structures are identified in the brain in a, in a full neuroquant workup. And then it generates a report that will show you where that patient sits with respect to the normal population uh, given their age and sex. So, you know, a 75-year-old female should have a hippocampus of this volume and then plus or minus two standard, standard deviations away from that uh, middle uh, midline point would indicate that there's potentially a problem, uh, especially obviously if it's low, uh, 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 low hippocampal volume. And so this report then can be used both by the radiologist in dictating their report back to the referring physician, and also uh, can be used by the neurologist uh, or other referring physician to really explain the results to their patients. So it's very patient friendly in terms of presenting the data. Um, where you can see exactly where this patient falls with respect to the um, the normal population again. 
And the other good thing is that uh, if they come for follow-up scans, then uh, especially in MS, you're typically doing a follow-up scan every six months. In Alzheimer's, you may uh, do a repeat scan in a year or two. You'll be able to track where that patient is. So we see that uh, you know the previous scan will show a certain position on the uh, comparative charts, and then you'll see where that patient is going. Um, and again, if they're sort of stabilizing or if they're continuing to decline, um, that would be very obvious from the presentation on the chart. And again, very helpful for the neurologist to be able to explain the uh, pattern of uh, activity to their patients. And to do the scan, you're using MRI, is that correct? Yes, it's uh, all MRI. But you use this both to diagnose and track the progression of the condition. What type of what is the what is the software actually measuring to make a diagnosis, and what's the output the doctor sees? Right. So um, the definitely used for both the, to assist in the diagnostic side and then to track progression. So um, Alzheimer's isn't a great example for the tracking uh, progression following treatment model, but MS now has a lot of uh, a lot of treatment cap uh, treatment options. So if we uh, we have a patient that's being administered one of the new infusions, say, and we are doing every six-month follow-up on them, then the change in volumes of brain structures and the uh, numbers of plaques and the emergence of new plaques or um, resolution of uh, old MS plaques or lesions uh, would be tracked in follow-up studies that are done using uh, the NeuroQuant product line. So... What is being measured exactly is the the volumes of particular structures in the brain. So for Alzheimer's, we'd be interested in the hippocampus and generally the temporal lobe region of the brain. And in uh, MS, there's a number of different regions coming into play, but the thalamus is one of the big ones, uh, and then some other secondary structures as well as just whole brain volume, uh, which is very uh, you know, telling one of the early signs of of, of Functional loss in MS patients is gray matter volume loss, and so we can track that and present that back to the doctor for evaluation. And that's measured against a world of patients in terms of what a... Right, yeah. I mean, there's an absolute measurement that is the volume of that structure in that patient, and then a normalized uh, percentage, basically, and a percentile that shows you where um, that patient falls with respect to the, as you say, the world of patients, or at least the uh, thousands of patients that are in our normative database. I think a lot of people who have hope for seeing therapeutic benefits come to market are, are focused on early diagnosis and early treatment as as being critical to addressing the disease. How Absolutely. early in the process can your test diagnose someone and What's the likelihood that someone would be tested? Is there some threshold that triggers a, a doctor to use this, or would this be built into more of a, a routine physical for someone of a certain age? Um, typically, you would not uh, see that the software would be used or even an MRI would be obtained unless the patient uh, presents with some kind of a memory complaint in the case of Alzheimer's or uh, functional disability in the case of multiple sclerosis. So it would not really be typically used in advance, uh, although we can talk a little bit more later about some predictive capabilities we have uh, using genetics. But uh, as far as the imaging goes, typically you wouldn't see imaging until the patient had presented and probably been given some um, standardized testing. There's sort of cognitive tests that are routinely used 
in the clinical evaluation of patients with a memory deficit. And if the score on those sorts of tests were showing that there was some kind of uh, cognitive loss to worry about, then they would typically be referred at that point for an MRI. Um, in pre-software such as ours, they're really, you know, that, that MRI would have been, a, you know, read just uh, with the naked eye of the radiologist. And radiologists are extremely good at detecting very small changes in, in volumes and structures. And obviously, you know, an experienced neuroradiologist can make a call uh, very accurately as to whether that uh, there seems to be some loss over time, save a structure. But in order to, uh, but to be able to really compare that patient to where they are against the normal population based on age and sex of that patient is something that's more difficult to do with a naked eye read and um, and definitely getting the additional input uh, the quantitative output that uh, that Neuroquant provides gives the pa- gives the physician uh, more robust uh, view and helps really to shape the uh, impression of the patient you recently began the second phase of an NIH grant to use your analysis on PET images for diagnosis and prediction of Alzheimer's disease. What's the benefit of PET images rather than MRI? Um, the PET imagery um, is really getting to more of you know exactly what parts of the brain are affected by a burden of amyloid, uh, so particular. Uh, proteins, uh, the tangles essentially that are being uh, deposited in the regions of the brain that are particularly important in Alzheimer's disease. So PET imagery is important, but typically you would never send a patient directly from a cognitive complaint for a PET scan, uh, at least uh, not in the usual case. Uh, The PET scan, as I mentioned before, is quite invasive and also very expensive. So makes a lot more sense if you're going down the road of, uh, of evaluating a patient. You would do the cognitive testing first, you then do an MRI workup, and then typically if uh, there's volume loss, I mean, again, pre the volumetric software, if you saw that there was apparent volume loss in brain regions, then you may send them for a PET for a more definitive uh, answer, basically. If you have a positive uh, amyloid PET, that's pretty much a, a positive diagnosis for Alzheimer's. Um, at this point, though, backing up, uh, you know, the, the existence of this volumetric MRI software allows uh, referring physicians and, and neuroradiologists to really have more power to make a call and make a diagnosis just based on the MRI rather than the PET. But again, the PET imagery is uh, is very sensitive, and the development of new tracers such as Tau, which is something that uh, our SBIR grant is for allow us to make a much more accurate and potentially early prediction of uh, of the existence and, and a f- definitive diagnosis of Alzheimer's. You alluded to using the software as a potentially predictive tool. You actually have a partnership along those lines with a company to harness genetic data to create a predictive tool. What's that agreement? Yes, um, Healthlytics. Uh, is a sister company of ours, actually, founded by the same uh, same person that founded Cortex Labs, Dr. Anders Dale. Um, it is focused on both some advanced imaging technologies, but also has, as you mentioned, some very powerful genetic uh, testing algorithms that allow them to take the results of thousands of different uh, um, genes and alleles to make a very 
to make a very confident assessment of whether a patient would be likely or have the propensity to develop uh, Alzheimer's disease within 5, 10, 20 years. Um, so really, it's, it's using your genes to help predict whether or not you have the susceptibility to it. It's not telling you whether you have it, have Alzheimer's, or even guaranteeing that you are going to have Alzheimer's, but it's telling you sort of your percent risk in uh, getting Alzheimer's within 5 or 10 or 20 years. The interesting thing is, though, having that um, susceptibility really then should trigger somebody to get MRI imaging, because once you get the MRI imaging, we can evaluate using the NeuroQuant software where that patient is currently and whether or not the imaging shows that the patient is actually starting to go down that road of developing Alzheimer's. So putting the two, the genetic and the imaging together, gives us a much more powerful and robust um, ability to predict whether a patient is going to get Alzheimer's within their sort of normal lifetime or whether they're on track to get it by the time they're 125 or something like that, in which case nobody cares. Um, and it is very possible that you have a, a high propensity, so your genetic factors show that you have a 95% uh, chance of getting Alzheimer's in the next five years. But then based on your imaging and where you actually are right now, um, that would be revised could be revised much differently, and uh, we have examples where the uh, the imaging score really revises down the genetic risk, you know, down significantly, you know, down to say five or ten percent for somebody that looked like they had a ninety-five percent propensity. So it is a very powerful predictive tool, and uh, it's really just uh, sort of making its way into the marketplace right now, being used in some executive health environments, and uh, and wherever people have genetic information about themselves from, you can even use 23andMe or Ancestry.com uh, genetic testing and uh, sort of combine that with the imaging to provide a very robust uh, prediction. And uh, what what have you done to, to validate it at this point? Um, there's a lot of studies. Uh, there's a very large worldwide, now worldwide study uh, or not a single study, but a number of studies around the world uh, that started off with ADNI here in the U.S. Uh, more than a decade ago, the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative. And they've been collecting data for the ADNI study and follow-on, ADNI 2, ADNI 3, and uh, and like I mentioned, many other countries in the world have started their own programs like this where they're capturing the, um, getting the images from patients who are either normal, uh, mild cognitive impairment, or full Alzheimer's. And getting their genetics, getting their their uh, MRI, and uh, and a lot of uh, cognitive testing data as well. And so we have uh, both built the software tools using those databases, but also, you know, used a subset of those databases to test and validate that the, the system actually works. And it does prove, or it does turn out to be highly reliable and uh, highly predictive of the patients who started off in the study either normal and then progressed to Alzheimer's disease or started as a mild cognitive impaired uh, subject and then moved on to uh, to develop full-blown Alzheimer's instead of some other type of dementia. And do you have to go through any kind of an FDA approval to roll it out broadly commercially? Um, it's uh, really the combined, the combined test does not require additional testing. The um, the NeuroQuant obviously is 510K approved and also, or sorry, cleared, and uh, also uh, cleared for clinical use in numerous other countries around the world. And the genetic testing uh, has to actually conform to some laboratory best practices uh, certification, and all of that has also been done. So the uh, the two 
components of this are uh, are definitely weird on the regulatory side. So what's your expectation for broadening the use of that test? I'm trying to um, to get into routine use, and some of that involves paring down the number of uh, uh, genes that we're looking at and really just going for the more standard clinically uh, referred to um, genes such as APOE and looking at that status. Um, it doesn't allow the... Uh, the Makes the software somewhat less uh, robust in terms of uh, of prediction, but it's still very powerful, uh, uh, even with just the one gene as opposed to the thousands that would be used in the full sort of uh, the full version of the software that uses the all available genetic information. Uh, the use for this is typically right now in, uh, as I said. Uh, wellness uh, checkups, um, executive health programs, and things of that nature. But we do see interest from some big research hospitals like the Cleveland Clinics and Mayo Clinics of the world who uh, who are interested in trying to uh, evaluate this in their workflow as well. Chris Aris, CEO of Cortex Labs. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. Great chatting with you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.